What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. It's late November, and the nights are getting cold, and I'm wishing that someone would steal us fire from down below. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah? You know, and I've been, thinking about, I've been thinking about, you know, how did the sky show up anyway? How did we get coconuts? Did somebody ever maybe lasso the sun? Just stretch our days and bring us fun? Bring us some more fun? I think most of you probably know where we're going with this. I hope. Yeah. If you... uh. If you haven't seen the amazing Disney film Moana by now, it's probably time that you uh, that you do that. It's on Netflix. Uh, it's time that you open your eyes. Let's begin. And just, you know, Moana, make way. Make way. Make way for Moana. Well, welcome back to another week of the Midnight Myth, guys. We are going to be diving into... Pun uh, intended. The latest installment of the Disney franchise? The, the, is it the latest? I, there's there's been a couple of like there's a new Disney Pixar movie coming out I think this week but it's one of the one of the more recent of the uh, the real like Disney canon sure and uh, we're gonna dive deep into it so spoiler wall is up now spoiler if you haven't seen the Disney movie Moana pause it's on Netflix watch it and then come back to us. Otherwise, you've been warned. We're going to ruin the movie for you. Yeah. It's really exciting to talk about Moana because not only did we really just love the movie and think that it had really lovable, amazing characters, uh, a strong and surprising and inventive story, and beautiful, beautiful music written by Lin-Manuel Miranda and a fabulous team of songwriters. Uh, Not only did it have all those wonderful elements that make a great story that we like to dive into, but it's based also in uh, a huge mythic tradition. And that, of course, is one of our favorite things here at The Midnight Myth, is diving in to see what we can find in the stories we've been telling for generations and generations. Yeah, and to me, Moana was a introduction into Pacific Island mythology, something that I had little to no actual experience with and something that I knew nothing about. And one of the best parts about the movie Moana is that I instantly was like, what is this based off of? I know Disney didn't invent this story. Where did it come from? And how did it get to to where it is now in the property in the hands of Disney? And I think there's a long line of things for us to trace, starting with, I would say, uh, Disney and its history and tradition of dealing with the princess. Yeah. As a story that uh, sits and revolves around 
a young woman of royal blood or royal descent dealing with kind of the trials and tribulations of a hostile and threatening world. And I think Moana represents the next sort of evolution of the Disney princess. Absolutely. Uh, if you have been listening to us for a while, you'll remember that our, I think, second episode ever was an episode that we dedicated to one of our favorite characters and our favorite princess, Princess Leia, uh, which was a really fun episode where we got to explore what the princess is and what the princess has come to mean, especially in the context of Disney, who is such a, you know, a mega corporation that they have really influenced how a lot of us think of really important stories. They permeate our culture in a way that's really, really amazing and sometimes, you know, not always great. We have some uh, some historical beliefs about princesses where that word can become derogatory. It can mean a damsel in distress. It can mean uh, someone without a whole lot of power, which I think is completely opposite. It's the antithesis of what a princess should be. A princess should be a woman who is coming to power, right? And with Moana, we get a woman who is coming to power and discovering her power. But how do we get to Moana? What is the, uh, what is the line? What is the sort of legacy that leads to that kind of princess? Well, I think Disney started off, I want to say, with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, was their first four-way into full-length animated movies. And if we look at the role that young women have played, I would say in the last 20 years or so, they've deconstructed the idea that a princess is someone that, A, needs to be saved, right, and is, B, someone that uh, needs to find a royal prince to marry of some sort, in order to find happiness. Yeah. And I think uh, Disney has sort of kind of rewritten that paradigm for the modern age in a way that I would say is more inclusive and more uh, positive when it comes to the role of young women in these films. Absolutely. I don't know if you'd agree with that. I agree. I think it takes a while to get there, of course, uh, and there are so many elements we have to incorporate along the way. So not only do we want to start including uh, traits in these princesses that are a little bit more uh, powerful, that are a little bit more uh, aggressive kind of in their in their motivations, that are not passive women just sitting around waiting to be rescued from their bad situation. Uh, so we have like the mold of Snow White and Cinderella who really need to be rescued from a bad situation. And there's actually, I, I'll take that back about Cinderella a little bit. We just watched a really great video by Screen Prism that talked about Cinderella as a really uh, actually quite powerful character. Um, yeah, kind of changed my thinking about it too. Yeah, so there's some really interesting stuff out there about, uh, about the female victim. Uh, but I think Disney starts to evolve that Uh, especially around the 90s, when we start breaking out of that Snow White mold, we start breaking out of even Ariel in The Little Mermaid. Right. And we move on to... Jasmine in Aladdin. Yeah, Jasmine in Aladdin, Belle in The Beauty and the Beast, who start having traits like, you know, literacy and wanting to speak their minds and wanting to be independent and searching for their own purpose and their own meaning in life outside of maybe the walls they've grown up in. Uh, which really form this template for uh, a, a new kind of princess. And then in the 90s, we get, of course, Mulan, who, while technically not a princess, not the daughter of a king, has 
inserted herself in the canon of Disney princesses because she is, you know, the central female character in a Disney movie who wants to break out of her circumstances and wants to be a warrior and wants to fight for her country and her family. So we, we start to see the tides change uh, as, we, as we work our way towards a slightly more modern idea of the princess. But we still haven't gotten there. We still haven't figured out how to do that without inserting a love interest or you know, inserting a whole lot of gender stereotypes, right? Yeah, and then I'd say the Mulan is a, is a step forward. Then you have Frozen, in which you know, the, the main antagonist they, in, the, in the tradition of that story would be the Snow Queen. Right. They actually turn into a hero, in Elsa, which all the little girls just love. An anti-heroine. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, they really make that that story about two sisters and their love and their bond. Yeah. As opposed to the bond between a man that's trying to save them. In fact, the prince type character in that turns out to be the bad guy. Yeah. And even though we do get a little bit of a love story on the outskirts of that tale, it really is about cultivating a true love of family and the true love that's unconditional that comes with you know, being bonded with someone for your whole life. And it's a really kind of a magical step forward. And then we have Moana, who is the daughter of the chief. So royalty, not in a European sense or a European way, but definitely someone that is being groomed for a high position. Right. Instead of her purpose uh, being to marry a prince, you know, she's being trained to actually lead and rule and we see her in this role kind of being groomed when dealing with problems of the village. She's coming up with solutions and she's actually a natural leader and diplomat. You know, so we see that right out of the gate. Then uh, we see her, you know, becoming this sea voyager trying to take the heart of Tefiti. So there's a goddess who her heart gets stolen by a demigod named Maui. And Moana's journey is to return the heart back to the goddess because the world is dying. Yeah. It's it's a really you know unexpected kind of story for us to encounter, but what I think is so fascinating about Moana and how it's it's so easy to jump into this story is because it it knows its tradition. It knows that it comes from this long line of Disney princesses and Disney stories. And so it actually hits a lot of the same narrative beats and hits a lot of the same character beats, but then really expands upon them in a way that I've never seen a Disney movie do before. Uh, So what does Moana want at the beginning of this movie? She's a little girl and she knows that she's going to be the chief of this village, of this island of Montanui. And you know, she's kind of okay with that. That is her destiny is to, is to be in charge of this island and be a, a good leader. And she loves her people. She loves her island. She wants to do right by them. But she also has this inner conflict of knowing that she wants to be a voyager, knowing that she wants to know what's beyond the reef. And she has this kind of desire in her heart that she's never going to be able to extinguish. And that parallels so nicely the Jasmines, you know, the Ariels, the Mulans, who understand their circumstances, love their families, don't want to hurt anyone, and yet want to know what's out there, want to find themselves in that journey. They want to be able to see what's outside so that they can learn more. 
Uh, and so I think she, Moana, as a character, really stands in the image of those women, but in a stronger way, right? She truly, truly understands what's at stake if she were to leave her family, if she were to leave her island, but also is so capable of decision-making and understanding how to, uh, how to deliver on her promises while also fulfilling her own desires. Well, I think the thing, the, the narrative device, her call to adventure starts innately when, you know, the ocean chooses her as a baby and shows her the heart of Tafiti. Yeah. And in this really good scene, just to deconstruct, I think this is what shows the power of the character Moana. She is a baby, is just told the story of Maui stealing the heart of Tafiti, and that this is going to cause a great blackness. It causes a lava monster to come in. It's going to cause the death of life. And someday, someone's going to find the heart of Tafiti, take it to Maui, and then force Maui to return it. Right. So we get the prophecy right out of the gate in the beginning. And Moana, as a baby, goes to the ocean, and it's just like, yes, I want to swim. She sneaks out. Nobody is there. But she turns around and she sees a little sea turtle yeah. hiding under a leaf with birds literally circling around it and ready to just like chomp down on some good turtle flesh. Yeah. And what does baby Moana do? She abandons her desire to go swim in the ocean and helps the turtle and helps the turtle travel from, you know, this dangerous road. And then the ocean chooses her. Yeah. And I think if we deconstruct this scene, it tells us everything we need to know about Moana. Oh, absolutely. Moana will always go back to do the right thing over her own desires. Yeah. Moana is very empathetic and cares and wants to help those that can't help themselves. And because of these traits, the ocean chooses her. Now, if we flash forward in the narrative, when she finally decides to voyage and to take this call to adventure... This happens when she realizes that the blackness, the death from the the mother goddess not having the heart has finally spread to her island and she has no choice. The only way to save her people is to voyage. And when that happens, she finally says, you know what? I, I can't listen to my father who doesn't want me to leave the reef. I can't listen to everyone that needs me here. My duty is actually to return the heart. Otherwise we all will die. And how do we know she makes the right choice in a narrative sense? When she decides to finally voyage, her mother helps her pack. Oh, wow. A significant symbol that we all realize that you need to go. This is more important. Your, Your job is now to save the people by returning the heart and to voyage beyond the reef. And that catalyst right there, that first start, I think sets up a very deep, very empathetic, very brave character that like you just fall in love like right out of the gate with her like you're like she's amazing this is the hero that you want to root for absolutely and i think it's important to point out that while we understand from the beginning that she is not only a capable leader a really whip smart personality a truly empathetic and selfless human being who who loves her people and also can show love for the smallest of creatures on the beach she's also not perfect i think it's very very important in the creation of this character of moana that she's not a mary sue uh and if you're not familiar with the term mary sue uh it's sort of a uh a derogatory trope of a female character where sometimes you'll introduce a female character who is just sickeningly good at everything. And while it's awesome to have 
women and men characters who are good at what they do, sometimes it can be just simply too much. If your main character is good at everything and has no flaws, then they're not realistic, they're not three-dimensional, and it's just a little bit, you know, uh, insulting. Insulting to the character to not give them the truth and the depth of character that allows them to grow. Uh, Oh, go ahead. Yeah, but so I think it's important that we see pretty much right off the bat, as soon as Moana, you know, sets off and sets sail, that she's not necessarily perfect at sailing. She maybe doesn't always have the clearest head. You know, she uh, she finds the uh, chicken Hey Hey on the boat with her, who she didn't mean to pack, but he just wound up on the boat with her, and this chicken is pretty simple. And he falls off the boat, and she dives in right after him, showing her innate love of other creatures and, like, desiring to save and help, but then completely loses track of her boat. And it's all, it's near disastrous for her because in the, in the moment, she wasn't that great at making a, a split-second decision, right? Absolutely. I think it is significant. So, and... It's realistic. Someone who has never sailed before doesn't hop on a sailboat and suddenly know how to sail. Like you're not bored knowing how to sail. And sure the ocean chose you, but the ocean chose her for reasons outside of her skill and ability to, uh, to steer a canoe. The ocean chose her for innate qualities. Uh, and so, yeah, it was necessary for us to see that she had incredible struggles and that, it was not going to be just smooth sailing, if you will. Oh, I see what you did there. So many ocean puns this episode. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed that aspect of Moana, that they gave her challenges that allowed her to grow. Yeah. And one of those challenges was that she didn't know how to sail, and here she is trying to find a demigod on an island having never sailed before. They don't make it easy for her, which when she finally does return the heart of Tefiti, makes her victory so much sweeter is the fact that she had all of these little fails and all of these little missteps along the way. And um, do you have anything else you want to add to princesses as a theme? Well, I think it's fun that we, uh, we get a lot of meta commentary on the princess uh, structure in the movie itself. Uh, when Moana and Maui finally meet and they start sailing towards, uh, towards Tefiti, uh, Maui actually refers to her as a princess and she says, I'm not a princess. And then he's like, what does he say? Like he says, uh, father of the chief, long hair and an uh, animal on an adventure with an animal sidekick. Yeah. You're a princess. (laughs) Yeah. And so he sort of demeans her into the, the tradition of Disney princesses that are that damsel in distress. And she doesn't like being called the princess. Um, so we get that little meta commentary on, uh, on the history uh, but then we really see that she transcends the trope. She transcends the the stereotype of the princess locked away in the tower. And that gets to be a nice little victory for her as well. Yeah, and um, the other main character is Maui, shape-shifting demigod played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And he is a trickster deity. He's not a nice guy. He's totally vain. And what I love about his character as you, you get to know Maui more, like he doesn't want to go on this adventure, but really doesn't have a choice because the ocean has chose Moana. Yeah. And as much as he tries to get rid of her, the ocean just won't let him. And in that, he reluctantly goes on this adventure 
And we come to learn about him as a character that his whole motivation is dealing with abandonment issues. Yeah. I love that they they put this like complex, um, you know, deep-rooted, like psychological fissure in the mind and heart of a demigod. Yeah. That order to like uh, ultimately motivates him, uh, unmotivates him rather to help the main character, which in turn, as we get to know, he ends up becoming the best companion. He teaches her how to wayfind. And in the end is crucial in the fight against the lava monster. And what's interesting about building in those abandonment issues, building in that backstory is that those are rooted in existing myth. Uh, those are rooted in stories that have been told about Maui for, for generations in the Pacific islands. Uh, and so it was really cool to see Disney adapt that element of the story to really flesh out a character who could uh, almost like the Mary Sue be just this godlike perfect uh, character who can do no wrong. We find out that he really does have a really broken part of his heart. Excellent segue to what I'd like to talk about next, yeah. which is what Moana was based off of and what, you know, mythic and historical context it drew upon. Yeah. Tell me a story. So a few things that I thought were really interesting. One, I had no idea how ancient Pacific Islander culture was. Yeah. It's fucking old, people. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years, there have been people in the Pacific Islands, and for the most part, historically, they were voyagers. They would jump on these large boat canoes, just like you see in Moana, and that they would sail from island to island exploring the Pacific, which is remarkable when you think about they're traveling in the world's largest ocean, thousands of years ago in simple canoes yeah. and they based their whole society around that blows my mind. It's amazing. And, and it, it is amazing to really think about that too. think about the spread of that culture and this mythology, because not only do we have stories of Maui in like Hawaii, where we might imagine a Maui story to have taken place as just a lay person. That's the only place I've ever heard the word Maui. Um, but we also have those stories in New Zealand, which uh, has a, a huge line of Polynesian descent uh, in the Maori people of New Zealand, which when I think about it is so far from Hawaii, but oh, that's yeah. because these voyages were happening, happening where this mythology is spread and these stories can grow and sort of marinate in their own cultures. So the island that they have is based off of the island of Soma, not Hawaii. Thought that was interesting. Right, yeah. Never had even heard of Soma until researching this podcast. Um, the name Moana literally translates to the word ocean. I thought so. I thought that was right. Which is pretty interesting. The ocean chooses her and her yeah. name is Ocean, um, which is cool. Tafiti is a pan-Polynesian word for a faraway place, not based off of a real god or oh, goddess. Oh, that's really cool. But just using the faraway place, which is something that Disney has used many times, like a faraway land, a faraway place. So I thought... It's really cool that they incorporated that Disney mythology into it while inventing a new um, goddess. Yeah. Uh, Maui, we mentioned, is based off of an actual demigod from uh, the Pacific Islanders and from their mythology, in which there are thousands of stories about Maui out there. All really cool stuff that you can mine. Um, now, here's what I also thought was cool. So we've discussed the historic tradition of voyaging in the Pacific Islanders. There was about a thousand year period of their history where they stopped voyaging. Right. And nobody knows why. Nobody knows. Um, and this story seems to take place from that period of history 
where they're no longer voyaging. And at the end of the movie, Moana not only herself becomes a great wayfinder, she goes back to her people and brings voyaging as their tradition back, and they become voyagers again. Yeah. They had stopped voyaging because Tafiti, having lost her heart, the oceans became less safe, so they just stayed on islands. Yeah. Now that she's returned the heart to Tafiti, the, the oceans are now more safe, and boom, the whole thing comes full circle. They become voyagers again. I wanted Very to cool. point out one thing really, uh, not to interrupt, but just wanted to throw in another little means. legendary yeah, yeah. Uh, touch point is when we encounter the, uh, the, the volcano monster, um, the fire monster Taka mm -hmm. in the story, who we later, of course, find out is uh, sort of the, the shadow version of Tefiti, is the, the version of Tefiti that arrives when, when she, doesn't have her she heart. loses her heart and starts spreading this uh, sort of disease and darkness. Uh, I, I thought that she bared a lot of resemblance to the Hawaiian goddess Pele, uh, who is like a fire goddess and who is often associated with uh, volcanoes and uh, bad weather. And so I think Moana is drawing on a lot of these uh, these touchstones in, uh, in those legends and trying to uh, build a narrative that is familiar, but also like really, really grounds us. So I'm going to move into, great point, um, another phase of the discussion, something yeah. that I didn't realize. Yeah. And that is the parts of Moana that actually people did not like. And they aren't narrative parts, they aren't story structure parts, but parts where there are several, uh, you know, Pacific Islander historians and scholars that uh, had some cutting criticisms of the movie right. and really made me think. So I'll list out to do my best. I'm not a history or I'm not a, uh, uh, I don't know the most about Polynesian history. So I'm going to do my best to concisely give their arguments and give kind of, you know, maybe some two cents about them. Absolutely. So one, Maui is being criticized by being uh, based off a stereotype that Samoan men are fat. Whoa. That is one thing that people like challenged Maui on. They're saying, hey, you're kind of playing into a physique of the Samoan man that may or may not be accurate. It's a little stereotypical. Interesting. Um, the, you know, the God oh, I Maui just read is, him is really buff. Yeah. The God Maui in the stories is almost always a skinny teenager. Oh, so they, yeah? they changed his appearance. Um, and that is one thing because they, they deliberately changed his appearance uh, to being a larger, more full-bodied man. Yeah. Brought out this idea that they're drawing on a Samoan stereotype. I can absolutely And I it offended some people. That. So in almost every Maui story, he has a companion character, a goddess named Henna, who is surprisingly absent from this, begging the question, if you're going to do a story that is very much about Maui, where is his companion? Now, Henna can be his mother in some stories, his lover, his friend, but wherever there is Maui, there is Henna. And the absence has drawn some criticism um, from the, uh, the intellectual community of the Pacific uh, Islanders. Another part, the happy villager trope. This is something that I didn't even know existed before researching this. Sure. But there is a trope that comes out of uh, imperial, the imperial era of, moder of modernity. So when Europeans went around and just conquered up everything that they could grab. 
there existed a trope that all of the villagers are just these happy go lucky people with no real like, like troubles or no real conflicts. Hence they need to be conquered and they need to be brought into modernity to modernize them. And one of the criticisms is that they absolutely, I mean, there's an entire song about the happy village right? and how happy everyone is in the village and the village is just this perfect paradise. And all you have to do is be part of that village that some people cut down and I am still going on. Yeah. Another thing that I also learned is apparently a very offensive term to call someone from the Pacific Islander, the Pacific islands, a coconut person. That's an actual derogatory term. Oh, I've yeah. never heard of it. If you're from the Pacific Islanders and just me saying that offends you, I do apologize. Uh, not trying to trigger you, but that's apparently one of the most offensive things. Yeah, I can see that. So there is a very interesting scene in which there are these literal coconut people. The Kakamora. Called the Kakamora, right? Well, the Kakamora, that's an actual tribe of Pacific Islanders who are known for genetically being a little short, that they literally turned into short coconut people. Oh, man. And if you want to learn more, there's a ton out there on the internet about it, how deeply offensive that scene is. And if you're a member of the Kakamora and you're looking at that, you're like, you're going to be like, what? I'm this like evil, like coconut person that's literally trying to like kill people just to kill them. So that to me is probably like, of all of the other things that people point out to that are problematic, they are. And I won't take that away. I won't say like, oh, here's the white guy just saying it's not a problem. No, it is. This to me, learning about it was like, that is some seriously damning. Like in maybe 20, 30 years, are we all going to look at that and be like, I can't believe Disney did that. The way Disney has in the past, thinking of Dumbo, for example. Yeah, Song of the South. That is, you know, known to now everyone agrees, man, that was horrifically racist. Super racist. Well, this is a huge racist part of this movie. So up until 1976, standard academic discourse in the West around the Pacific Islanders was that they were not a sea voyaging people because, and this was the prevailing theory, they were just too dumb. Ugh. Until someone actually rebuilt one of their uh, standard voyaging boats and went and just started sailing between island to island being like, look, it's just, it's possible to be a wayfinder. We've done it. And that was just like, oh, I guess those stories are true. Yeah. And before we jump into analysis, uh, one thing to point out, Disney formed an oceanic advisory board. Right specifically to make sure that this movie was culturally sensitive. So it's interesting that they had this board and yet still have such a long list of critiques. And I'm going to just read a quote and then I will gladly turn it over to you for analysis. <laughs> so Pacific Island scholar Vincent Diaz um, from Guan writes, quote, who gets to authenticate so diverse a set of cultures and so vast a region as Polynesia and the even more diverse and larger Pacific Island region that is also represented in this film. And what exactly does it mean that henceforth it is Disney that now administer, administrates how the rest of the world will get to see and understand Pacific realness, including substantive cultural material that approaches the spiritual and the sacred? You know, it, it's it's interesting and I think important to, to do this research and to uh, listen to these voices too, because it's very easy for uh, when you see a movie come out 
that is spread by Disney and that reaches so, so many people and tells stories that you never would have heard before from voices that usually don't get to speak louder than yours, uh, it can be really exciting and really easy to say, okay, we fixed it. We have diverse movies in Hollywood now. And Moana honestly has a lot going for it in that sense. For everything that we've laid out with uh, the the evolution of the female character, the evolution of the Disney princess, and also it's a story and a mythology that hasn't been introduced into the mainstream in a while at least, but certainly not to the extent that it has been in Moana. And there is really amazing care taken with the casting. I think it's fantastic that they cast all... uh, uh, people of Polynesian descent in the principal roles in that movie. Even Jemaine Clement is part Maori and he, he gets to sing that fantastic song. Shiny is Tamatoa. And uh, so there totally forgot about shiny. So there are a lot of reasons to celebrate Moana for its, uh, its attempt and its, uh, its sincerity and its, its desire to be authentic and to reach forward and, and, and give something to a new community. But We can't get complacent with that kind of thing. We do have to listen to the voices that say, hey, I understand that you were trying to tell a story about me and for me, but it wasn't for me. It was for the greater population. It was for white people. It was to make my stories digestible to uh, white people. And it actually played upon some really offensive stereotypes. And we can't just ignore that even if the movie is fantastic and widely it has been received as one of the best Disney movies to date but we can't let those things slide just because a movie is good we can't let Gone with the Wind slide just because it's a beautiful film we can't be okay with the stereotypes that it plays on of happy slaves so we can't necessarily be okay with the happy villagers in Moana we have to do both yeah, yeah, we have to be able to walk and chew gum. To the central question of the quote that I just read, what role do you think when you have a multinational conglomerate corporate entity that's business is commodifying and making money off of stories, otherwise known as Disney, what role should they play when it comes to codifying and commercializing other cultures for profit. And that role is complex because on one hand, they get it so right. So many of the Disney properties are telling the stories today that are going to matter for the longest time. They have such an amazing team of people behind them and they're doing work that I truly deeply in my heart love more often than not. But when you hear the scholars of an area unilaterally, like it's hard to find anyone I tried that is a uh, is knowledgeable in the academic discourse of the Pacific Islands that doesn't have a scathing rebuke of this movie, you know. And so, if you if listeners, if you can find one that doesn't, please send it my way. You know, I'd like to read it. I couldn't find it. And when you don't have when you have that level of almost universal condemnation, it does beg the question. What is the role that Disney can play in literally telling people this is what this culture thinks and feels and believes, and this is how they are like, and everyone being like, oh, it's a great story. It totally revamps Princess Theory, and 
We absolutely love it. It's a great role model for kids. And, and all of those things are true. But what role does Disney really have in this? It, it's interesting, right? It's, it is interesting. It's a fascinating ethics question and a fascinating question of responsibility. What I can say is Disney has assumed its role. Disney may not know what its actual best purpose could be in, in being part of this conversation, but Disney has assumed the role of the arbiter of a lot of this. It has told us how to think of a lot of cultures and a lot of, uh, of different stories. It has given us our pattern as we grow up for how we understand the world. And it has led to, I think it has contributed to some of those divisions uh, just in telling great stories. We, you know, we have Aladdin. What do we think of, of Agrabah? We haven't necessarily seen a, uh, a positive or uh, realistic portrayal of the Middle East, but we have Agrabah, which is laden with cultural stereotypes. Uh, and I think that's, part of that is shorthand, part of that is uh, humor and playing to children, but it's not excusable for that. Yeah, because on one hand, I can say, hey, myself, my personal own subjective worldview was enhanced by Moana because it made me look at a different area, a different time and a different culture and be like, I want to learn more about this. Yeah. It helped me gain a deeper appreciation for a period and a people that I didn't really have much of an appreciation before. Like weren't even, it's not like I was anti, just wasn't even on my radar. Yeah. So on one hand, I'm like, man, it's an enriching experience. Absolutely. Then on the other hand, you say, well, is it okay that Disney gets to make money exploiting the fact that I know nothing and about the Pacific to, Islands and gets to sell Halloween costumes to little kids of like Maui and Moana, which gets into a whole other realm of cultural appropriation. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating question to explore. Um, it really is. It is. And I think I'm really glad you brought all those academic uh, critiques to the table. Uh, but I wonder too about the non-academic side of this. So what does a little girl growing up in New Zealand who is part Maori or is Maori or a little girl growing up in Hawaii, what does she say when she sees Moana, when she sees, you know, a vision of her culture, someone who might look more like her than the, than the Cinderella's out there? What does she think? Uh, and I can't speak to that, but I'm really interested in what that non-academic side of that is. So good point. Yeah. What benefits are there to, putting these kinds of stories on screen versus what is the cost? Right. I mean, a very, very good point because, you know, for me, I want to celebrate diversity. I believe that diversity is one of the great virtues of the modern era. That our time, if it does one thing right, is that it's striving to accept diversity. Yeah, we're working on it. You know, and yeah, there's a ton of work to do, but it's one of the things that is most encouraging about the current generation as they're growing into adulthood yeah. is that they seem to be, in my opinion, pro-diversity and believe that diversity is good. And I so believe that too. Yeah. I've just seen the power of it firsthand in like working in a diverse workplace, meeting people you not otherwise wouldn't maybe associate with that have enriched my life and become great friends. Yeah. And, you know, so I believe in that power and so I do wonder on all levels, like it's easy to go out and see what the academics are thinking about Moana because there's a beautiful thing like Google Scholar. I don't know what the average Hawaiian 
thinks of it. Yeah. You know, like I really don't. And it, it'd be, I'd be curious. I can tell you that I think my role as sort of like the most vanilla, you know, stereotypical male, <laughs> you know, like, like my, I think my role is when it comes to these questions is to listen more than talk. I agree. Even though you're all listening to me do a podcast, that's a little hypocritical, but like <laughs> I, I thought it was amazing just listening and reading to what other people were saying about Moana from a perspective that I hadn't even remotely considered. And all in all, like I, like I size up my experience with Moana from watching it passively as a viewer, then watching it actively in terms of researching for the podcast to then researching what people have said about it has been one of the most rewarding experiences. But then again, I remember Disney wants my money and that's why. Yeah. Right. And I can't be, it'd be naive if I, if I didn't recognize that Moana was made to make me happy. And, and I don't know if that's a problem. I honestly don't like it certainly is in the respect that it created material that offended people, which is not okay. But then on the other level, it's like they're a corporation trying to make money. Of course they're going to, you know, fuck it up and make money doing it, you know? Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I think I'm rambling a little. Let me back well, up. Well, and art and commerce is, is a, another big question and something we have touched on a little bit on the podcast, but something that uh, definitely merits more exploration. Uh, I think you've really hit the nail on the head in the sense that it's, it's always time to listen uh, for, for all of us. It's time for us to listen to and amplify the voices that are not necessarily the loudest in our societies. Um, and I think that you and I have both, and a lot of people have had a really, like you said, enriching experience from encountering stories of other cultures and, uh, and wanting to learn more about them because of that. And sincerely going in and listening to the voices that critique it, which I think is, is the best we can hope for. Um, any corporation that is choosing to be the arbiter of what cultures you understand and the lens with which you perceive them is going to mess up. It is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Uh, and while we have to hold them accountable, it's also important to hold ourselves accountable, to continue asking questions, to not blindly accept what's put in front of us, to celebrate the stories that are truly good and that advance uh, you know, our understanding of, of women, advance our understanding of minorities, advance our understanding of people in general. It's important to celebrate those stories, but always, always scrutinize and, and hope for stories to be better and to make us better. That's how I feel. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And, you know, I always wonder, I come back to this, the pragmatic thing, like, what do I want Disney to actually do? Because I certainly don't want them to stop trying. No. Like, I don't want them to say, like, that's it. We're only going to tell Cinderella and Snow White style stories because, you know, anytime we try to, to, to do anything different, all we do is get criticized for it. Well, I don't want them to make that decision and calculus from a business perspective. But at the same time, I don't want them turning the Kakamura into like, you know, demon coconut people. Like that's not okay. No, it's not. Like you shouldn't like, come on, you had an advisory board to make the movie as authentic as you could. How did you fuck that detail up so terribly? 
And like, and it's one of those things that most people aren't going to go into Google Scholar and like Google Moana. What do people say about it? What are people writing about it? Most people aren't going to realize that the Kakamora are an actual tribe of Pacific Islanders that they just totally racially slurred uh, to make cute little toys. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like yeah. cute little toys and have like one little like blip on the adventure for Moana and Maui, give them their first obstacle where they have to start learning how to team up and work together. You know, like it feels like when you have an entire universe of which you can draw upon and of which you can create whatever you want for this narrative. Why do you make the racist choice? Yeah. It's like such a shame. Like, and it does put a little bit of the air out of the balloon in my love for that movie. Cause I do genuinely love the movie when like, if Disney asked me, what are the action plan to make sure things like this don't happen again? You know, it's like, how do I be like, well, don't make the racist choice. Like, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think the only thing that I can offer uh, is really a, a wish for uh, for thoughtful consumption, uh, rather than you know hoping that I could tell Disney the the right path forward to do everything right and never offend anyone. Um, my wish is for those who consume stories. Uh, I kind of offer this as a challenge to anyone, especially if you're listening to our podcast, you're probably predisposed to want to do this. But when you hear a story, when you watch a movie, when you watch a TV show, look further. Don't just take it. Don't just take the story in and let it sit. Try to understand it. Look past it. And if you don't understand it, try to learn more. You know, type something into Google Scholar. Look into the history, read a book, you know, listen to a podcast. I, I have this sort of wish for thoughtful consumption of stories. And I hope that that can lead us all towards a little more tolerance, a little more understanding and a little bit better decisions when telling our own. That's a really good point to be an active participant in the viewing process and not passive. Because if we are passive and we are complacent, you know, Companies such as Disney can make mistakes and they will be able to continue to make them. And ultimately, I want Disney to be amazing. Yeah. And I'm not anti-Disney at all. Like, Disney makes amazing and compelling stories and I want them to continue to be a voice, but it has to be a voice for good. I agree. So, any final thoughts before we wrap up this week's episode? Uh, that's really my final thought is that wish for thoughtful consumption. I extend that wish and that challenge to all of you, our listeners, and I hope that you will challenge others to do so as well. Be active listeners, be active watchers, be active audience members. And, uh, well, if you guys like this episode, you didn't like this episode, you want to know more, hit us up, give us a review on iTunes really helps the show when you review us. Yeah, we would love some reviews on uh, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, if you have any suggestions, any questions, or any episodes and stories that you want to hear more about, hit us up on Facebook. You can search for us, The Midnight Myth Podcast, on Twitter, at The Midnight Myth, and now on Instagram, at Midnight Myth Podcast. And then if you just want to learn more, check out our blog and drop us a line. Hit us up at www.midnightmyth.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.